I really wanted to take, I wanted to have an opportunity for us um, to be able to talk a little bit about Philippians um, and, um, and talk about maybe, I, hopefully uh, you've taken the, the opportunity um, to spend a little bit of time looking through the book, reading some of it, um, exploring it. Um, and, and maybe you have some thoughts or some questions. It doesn't have to be, oh, pastor, I was wondering about the Greek word under here. I mean, by all means, I'm, I'm willing to answer those questions. But, but I mean, it's just an opportunity for us to, to uh, consider the scriptures together for a few minutes before we get into um, the next passage. And, and the reason, to be honest, the reason that, that I want to do this is the next passage we're going to deal with is Paul's prayer for the church. And, and one of the things that he prays for is for their knowledge and their discernment um, to grow. And I think as a, as a congregation, we, we should be seeking to grow in our knowledge of the scriptures and our discernment, the application of the wisdom of the scriptures. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't you know, necessarily um, be sitting around going, waiting for somebody to tell us what the Bible means, um, but rather taking the time to be active and students of the scriptures. And so... Um, so I know this is a little weird. It's a little awkward sometimes for people to bring things up. Um, I know my wife has got a bunch of questions that she she emailed me, and I can't remember if I responded or not. That's not good. <laughs> but um, anyway, so so we wanna we wanna take a, a couple minutes. And she's chasing the dog because the chair is empty. I guarantee that Wallace got into something um, because, like his Scottish namesake, he is a troublemaker. And, uh, and so he is off. I'm sure he's probably got, uh, I don't know, he, he's done everything you could possibly imagine that you could do without opposable thumbs. Um, so um, anyway, let's, let's take some time. Let's talk about Philippians. What, um, maybe as you were reading it, what stuck out to you? Um, questions, comments, thoughts, uh, feelings, impressions. Um, we just want to take a few minutes and talk about this, this, um, this powerful book. Uh, Russ. Yep. Uh, in uh, uh, one verse six, uh, and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And it's so interesting to follow all the all the references to the day of Christ and the day of the Lord all the way into Revelations uh, twenty and twenty one. Mm. So I'm um, interested in. You know, some thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, and um, this idea of, of uh, you know, this anticipated season of God's work. Um, and Paul really did believe that he was in the final days. Um, and, and I think he wasn't wrong. Um, I think that uh, we, we live in the last act uh, of, of, the world. Now, how long that last act lasts, um, we, we really don't know. You know, as I often say, I know Jesus is coming back. The details are fuzzy, um, you know, and but we, we definitely are uh, the last act. One of the one of the um, one of the commentators I sometimes read don't always agree with. But um, in fact, most of the time I don't agree with him. Um, but he calls this he calls the this part of history, the church age, for lack of a better term. He calls it the fourth act. And the reason he calls it the fourth act is how many acts do we usually say a play has? It usually has three. It usually has a kind of an introductory part. Then it has a crisis and then it has a resolution. And so he's kind of like, well, the church is the fourth act. 
Um, it's, it's this thing that God is doing, bringing the end. So, um, so it's the pre epilogue. That's a great word. We'll use that pre epilogue. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so he definitely does emphasize this idea of this is the day of, um, Christ's work, which will culminate in Christ's judgment, um, you know, on, on God's judgment on creation. So that's a great question, Les. And a whole other topic too, a whole other sermon series. <laughs> Not a question, but this is Ray or Ray B. Uh, verse 122, as we talked about earlier, so many people terrified to go out of their house. And I think that comes from a fear of death. And, and Paul in this chapter 122 said, I am living the flesh. It means fruitful labor for me. What, yeah, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire to be to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is necessary on your account. Mm. Just what a what a great verse to to tell us not to fear, to trust in the Lord, because leaving this world is even greater than being this world. So what is to fear? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a great, great note, Ray. Um, you know, the, the consideration of the consideration of, uh, and Nicole and I chatted a little bit about this. And I don't want to get into too much about it, but, but the distance that we have placed between ourselves and death in the modern world, because we're so terrified of it. Um, and so, so we, we try to kind of compartmentalize the world, um, as opposed to the agent, you know, the ancient world where death was just, a, it was part of life, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, and I don't mean to make light of it, but, you know, when you talk about a pandemic, you know, the Romans called a pandemic Tuesday. I mean, it was, it was always, there was always disease and plague running through the cities of the Roman Empire. And the average, when the average life expectancy um, is down under 50 years old, um, you know, uh, that, that's, that's a very different world than ours. I mean, I think infant mortality, somebody did the numbers and, and kind of made some estimates that infant mortality was like one in, in seven or one in six um, during the first century, um, which is so much lower. I mean, today, what is it today, Doc? Infant, infant mortality is what, one in 10,000, one in, one in 20,000? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, kids live for a long time. People live for a long time. I mean, Let's be honest. I'd make a terrible hunter. If I take my glasses off, I can't see my computer screen and I'm literally 18 inches from it. Um, so, you know, it, this, this is, it's a weird, it has nothing to do with Philippians, but, but somebody was talking about one of the movies that I know is an, uh, from the eighties. And they were talking about how the star suffered from this terrible eye condition. Oh, it was awful. And it's amazing. He survived it. He suffered from an eye condition called myopia. <laughs> <laughs> myopia means being nearsighted <laughs> so, <laughs> that was it was amazing anyway all right back to philippians so uh what other what other thoughts i think the corollary to what ray is talking about in fear is the constant challenge we have with jesus challenging us to lay down our life for a friend mm. right and and the idea that are we being self-preserving are we being responsible are we preserved like he says like i'm i'm it's necessary for for you that i remain in the body so you know that's that's not a simple answer right to just 
pick up every hitchhiker to do a good deed and, you know, taking risks versus laying down your life for Jesus is a uh, lifelong challenge, I think. Yeah, I mean, and, and think about think about the 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 radical responses some churches have had to the pandemic. Oh, we're just not going to the government doesn't have the right to tell us to gather. We're going to gather if we want, you know, um, and, and it, it, is that really wise stewardship of the relationships that God has entrusted them with? You know, I mean, I get that it's unconstitutional, you know, First Amendment and all that stuff. But, you know, let the court sort that out afterwards. You know what? What we have the technology to be able to handle this, and and so, you know, it'd be one thing. It'd be one thing if, um, you know, if they were telling us that if they were telling us the church building was going to be plowed under and be replaced with uh, temporary housing for Canadian immigrants. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm just making something up off the top of my head. I don't, you know. But the it, it's it's just a matter of just common courtesy. So like you know, like Janet said, there's a balance of being present although we're not citizens of this world we're present in this world and so you know we have a, an obligation and a ministry and a responsibility to others so um so uh, other thoughts from philippians i'm actually looking for my wife to see if she's returned yet she's she disappeared on me she's here somewhere i'm sure i don't see my producer either All right, she's there. Yeah, Nicole's gone. Ah. Hi. Oh. Yep. Just, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Take a chair, Nicole. I'm standing up. I just like noticed that in um chapter two, where it talks about Christ and his humility, that towards the end of that section, right around verse eight to the 10, Paul starts quoting from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 52, and then he, he even quotes from Isaiah 45, where it talks about God is one, and mm -hmm. there was no God before him, but be no God after him. Mm -hmm. I just, um, yeah, just thought it was cool that he was, like, making the correlation back him yeah. suffering as a servant even though he was like the one and only true god from yeah. the beginning yeah and and you know what's cool as a as a as a musician you you know that i mean all musicians know that songwriting is creative stealing um we <laughs> we basically just take music from other people i think at one point uncle joey in the show full house back in the 80s he said there are only 12 notes um, you know, and, and Paul writes Philippians 2, you know, the verses that Noel was talking about is, is a song. Um, and he borrows heavily from the Old Testament. He borrows heavily from Isaiah, like Noel noted, um, to draw everything together. All these passages looking forward to the Messiah, the day of the Messiah, the day of Christ, the restoration of Israel, um, and kind of draws it all into Christ and really just packs it in so tight. Um, when we get there, I have kind of a, a breakdown of that passage. It's a really, it's really fascinating to see the way that Paul structured this. Um, it's very, very Greek. Um, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a Hebrew thing. Paul does Hebrew things, um, but this is the way he writes that song is very Greek. It's very, it's very cool. It's meant to be sung um, as part of the the worship of the church, which is 
Uh, it's a great way. I mean, and we're going to talk about this, but um, the passage that we're, we're in, chapter one, believe it or not, Paul packs into this the teaching of the Trinity. He does it twice. And you, if, you're not, if you're not looking for it, you might not see it, um, but, but it's in there. And um, see, if you can, see if you can spot. He, twice he brings up the Trinity um, in, uh, in chapter one. Um, and uh, so other thoughts? In one one twenty three, what? In in one twenty three, he says, uh, "I'd rather depart and be with Christ." The the notion of being immediately with with Jesus at the time of death is such an encouragement, such a, a freeing. Um, it's it's, it's it, it should take so much fever away. Uh, there's there's no sleep state that we need to go through. There's no purgatory that we need to go through. Mm-hmm. To to be with Christ uh, happens right as soon as He takes us home, and that's that's instantaneous. Yeah. Um, so we can rejoice, even though we sorrow, for those who who depart here. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, years ago, and I should probably do. I, you know, there are so many series I did that I, I I'd like to do again. I did a series on the um, the end of life. Um, particularly on the topic of hell, but, but um, there's so much of our view of after death that is very medieval in the, in our, our modern world, you know, they, that all the ideas that people perpetuate, you know, it's like, Oh, well, you know, you die and then you go to a cloud and you play a harp and, or, or Peter's at the gate, um, which is always my favorite one. I'm like, I'm like, please show me that one. Peter, Peter's going to meet you at the gate. I was like, I don't know about you, but I'm not looking forward to Peter meeting me at the gate. <laughs> I have somebody slightly higher on my list that I'd like to meet first. You know, and um, you know, and that and that that idea, you know. Now I do, you know. I think that I think there's a beautiful, you know, concept of we're with Christ and we're with those who are with Christ. You know, so like. I do believe that when Lynn passed, he passed immediately into the presence of the Lord. Um, and Jerry was there um, already. It was not, okay, now I'm going to take you over to see Jerry. You know, she, she was already there. She, he was gathered to his people. And, um, and, and, you know, and so, and so she was there and she had already organized the house and he already knew what part was his and what part was hers. And he was not allowed to mess with stuff, you know? So, um, so uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, anyway, um, back to Philippians. Anybody else? Other thoughts? Yeah, Eric, this is the other Ray B. The other Ray B. Um, I, I, I have thought about this section uh, a lot, but I haven't really studied it in, in depth. And that is uh, Philippians 3. Um, it probably starts at verse 8, but I was kind of cluing in more on verses um, uh, 10. Verse 10, which says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That there's, there's a lot to that that I don't fully understand uh, what he was trying to convey. Mm. And I guess on the other side of the coin is in verses 12 through 14, uh, Paul goes onward and says that he hasn't really gotten there yet. And that how he uh, stop doesn't look behind but keeps looking ahead. Mm. Um, I, 
I think that's something that uh, at least piques my interest. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Striking that balance of, you know, Paul is so good with um, walking the tightrope, right? Um, holding the truth in tension of, I mean, think about where Paul is in this. I mean, he's in Rome and, and I'm going to post today, I'm going to post some background about Paul in Rome and, and, you know, whether he was really imprisoned where the tour guides say he was, he wasn't, um, uh, and, and those kind of things. But, but the, um, but I mean, he's at the end of his life and it hasn't been an easy life. And so there's a sense that Paul can't wait for this life to be over, but he's not in a hurry. Now that makes no sense unless you've been in the military where you know that the rule of the military is to hurry up and wait. Um, you know, and so, so he, he, uh, you know, Paul is both ready to go to the Lord right now. You know, he's, he's ready to be united in, in his suffering to go to the resurrection, but he's already, he's also still working. He's not giving up. He's not surrendering. He's just moving on. Yeah. And there's a, there's a Ray, there's a ton packed into Paul's view of his, uh, his purpose in the body. Um, he, he has a lot to say about both in Philippians and elsewhere about him and his body and, and his ministry. Um, and somebody one time said to me, they, they were talking about, uh, like how the human being is broken up and they're like, well, you are a soul or you are a soul in a body. You're not a body with a soul. And I said, well, uh, no, you are you. <laughs> Let's not let's not sit there and take the scalpel and start breaking you up into pieces. Well, this part isn't me, but this part is me. I'm all me. So so my body, my soul, my spirit, you know, my mind, my heart, my reins, whatever. It's all me. It's not that one part of it is more me than not. And so Paul, I mean, he thinks he talks about his body and he talks about how it's breaking down and he can't wait for it to be renewed, you know. And yet at the same time, he has great appreciation for what is happening to his body his suffering brings him closer to Christ, all this stuff. He's, he's got a, Paul has a really interesting um, wide spanning perspective on what it means to be a human being um, and to be a, a human being generally and a Christian specifically um, when it comes to life and death. Oh, that's a great catch. We'll get to all of these, but this is why Philippians could be a long Bible study. There's a lot in this book. There's a lot in this book. Um, anybody else? Any other thoughts? Was the spots where he brought in the Trinity, was that 111 and then 128 and 29? Uh, 111 is part of it. Good catch. Um, there's actually one before that. And then, um, and then he brings it up again later, yep, 28 and 29. But there's actually one before that. Yep. So keep digging, Wesley. Keep digging. <laughs> Uh, this is Dan. I think uh, I had read in one commentary that the church was about 10 years old and it may have been like five years since Paul had been there. Um, so he's speaking to them as a, in terms of how long you live, like you mentioned, you know, average age was maybe 50. Um, it's a relatively mature church if it's 10 years old and they do have overseers and uh, deacons and whatnot. So they have a pretty strong organization. Um, so I feel like he's speaking to them as a mature body and, you know, if mature is 10 years old. Um, and also, uh, it's interesting that in that, in that short time, there have always been, in, there's, there have already been infiltrators 
who have come to disrupt and to try to, you know, find a way to profit from and, and whatnot. Let's yeah. See if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, um, Philippians is definitely, the church in Philippi is definitely probably one of the more mature churches that Paul writes to, uh, Philippi and Ephesus. Ephesus is probably, if I were to pick a church that I said is kind of the model church for, for Paul's ministry, it's probably Ephesus. But Philippi isn't far behind. Um, and they're dealing with issues. What's great about Philippi is they're dealing with external issues. So, so Corinthians, the Corinthian church, they're dealing with internal issues. They have leaders in the church who are, I mean, having relationships with their mother, their, their stepmother and, and uh, abusing the poor and all kinds of stuff. The Philippians, I think, are just getting a little confused because, like you said, it's been a decade. And over time, you start to hear more voices that, and they say things that sound good. And so do we do, is this right? Is this wrong? And I think they write to Paul, um, specifically asking him about this. And I think he comes back with an, with a, with an answer. I do think, I think they're a very mature church. I think that they have um, some, I think that, uh, and I mentioned um, uh, last week or the week before about Lydia and the Philippian jailer. Um, I think they're mature in the sense that they're not Jewish as well. So they didn't have to get rid of some of the the, the added on Jewish things um, that Paul had to deal with. They're Gentiles to start with. So, so that frees them from some things. There's both pros and cons to Paul being Jewish. I don't want to get into too much of it, but um, they, they're not worried about, you know, for example, they're not worried about keeping kosher. This, this isn't a concern for them. So instead, they can focus on idolatry, you know. And so when the Jews, Jewish teachers start coming in saying, well, you need to do this, they're kind of looking at it going, well, this is, this is from the outside. This is, this, is not something, this is not something we already do. So why, you know, we didn't learn this from Paul. So, um, so I think, yeah, I think their maturity is really evident. I think in Paul's language to them, um, you know, think, of, think about how positive he is all the time with them. He's always talking about, you know, you're in my every prayer and I want your joy to grow and your love is abounded and you guys have been so great to me. You know, so it's not like the Corinthians where it's like, don't make me come back there. You know, like, like it's, it's a very different letter. So yeah, it's, it's really good. Not that they're perfect, um, you know, but, uh, but they definitely have developed well. Um, yeah. So uh, any other thoughts? Thanks, Dan. I think I found what you're talking about, Pastor. Yeah. So starting in verse three, I give thanks to my God. And then in verse five or verse six, he who started a good work in you. And still in verse six, ending with completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So there are, there are, Paul uses a, Paul has what we call an implicit theology of the Trinity or the Godhead. So Paul doesn't need to sit there and go, this is the thing, which is how, you know, a lot of our historical creeds are written. I believe in God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. He just implies it. Um, it's kind of like his knowledge of the gospels. Um, one of the criticisms of Paul is, well, Paul clearly didn't know Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Like he doesn't know the gospels. He doesn't know the stories. He doesn't tell any of the stories. He doesn't. So, so Paul didn't know this. Um, and, uh, and I can post this, um, but uh, there's, a, there's a, um, a New Testament scholar who did his doctoral dissertation 
on the implicit gospel of Paul's teaching and goes through and shows how Paul is very, very, very aware of the story of Jesus. He just doesn't tell it because they already have Matthew, Mark. They, they already have the story. So there's no reason for him to recount it. But Luke is Paul's version of the gospel. So when somebody says, somebody says, well, Paul, you know, I was like, well, who, where, did, where did Luke learn it from? Luke, <laughs> Luke learned it from Paul. So he clearly does know. Um, so it's the same thing with the theology. He builds the triune nature of God into what he says. So like Wes, Wes said, um, Wesley said, he says, um, he says uh, uh, when he starts, he says, my God, that's God the Father. Then he says, he who began a good work in you, that's God the Holy Spirit. And he says, until the day of Christ, that's God the Son. And then again, down in verse 11, um, he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Well, we know from elsewhere in Paul's writings that he, the person that fills you with the fruit of righteousness is the Holy Spirit um, um, that comes through Jesus Christ, there's God the Son, to the glory and praise of God, there's God the Father. So he, he's, he's implicitly bringing this idea of the coexistence of, of or the co-nature of God. So when we talk about the doctrine of Trinity, uh, if you've ever had to talk with a Jehovah's Witness, where's Greg? What, what's one of the first questions they ask, right? He's muted. First questions they ask? Yeah, about this. Well, oh, am I? You're, you're unmuted. Okay. Uh, well, they're going to they're gonna ask where where was where was Jesus? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not quite understanding your question. Yeah. Well, they're gonna. They're. I mean, are they? They're gonna ask where is the Trinity in the Bible, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's well. You believe in the Trinity? That's not in the Bible, right? I mean, that's 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 that's. Yeah, that's but it's a made up. Yeah. Made up doctrine. That's been made up by the church, you know. Um, now, was the word is the word Trinity in the Bible? No, it's not. It's not. It's 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 a word we invented to explain the fact that Paul keeps doing this. <laughs> he keeps bringing up these three persons in in his conversation and. How can God the Father be the creator of the world and the person who resurrected Jesus and the Holy Spirit be the creator of the world and the person who resurrected Jesus? And how can Jesus be the creator of the world and the resurrector of Jesus? Well, the only way that that's going to possibly work is if they are uh, coexistent. And so the early church invented this term that really, if you think about it, makes no sense. The three one. We can apprehend it, but we can apprehend what? The scriptures say about God. Exactly. Exactly. So, and if you guys don't know, I should I should bring this up. If you ever want to hear a really great testimony of God saving you, um, uh, Greg and Lori were both Jehovah's Witnesses, so um, that's why I asked Greg. He can, they can tell you. I will. We'll have we'll have them tell the story one day because it takes a while to tell it. It is an awesome story. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, any other thoughts about Philippians um, in general? Thanks, Greg. Sure. Anybody else? One of the things um, I know I've shared with the ladies' ministry 
I love using um, Paul's prayers as a way to pray for other people. So in like chapter one, verses nine through 11 um, is one of them, but you can also find one in Colossians 1, 9, Ephesians mm -hmm. 3, 14. So I can't remember where I got the idea, but at one point I tried picking distinct people every morning and praying that prayer for them. And it's one of those scary, dangerous things to do because it works. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. Thanks for the transition, Janet, because that's actually the passage we're going to talk about today. <laughs> is the is the the prayer in um, in verse chapter one, verses nine through eleven? Because um, I I think like like Janet said, I think people sometimes ask me, you know, how do I pray for such and such, and and while you don't want to have prayer being just something empty that you repeat, and there are a lot of people that pray the prayers in the Bible, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer, they just recite it. There are a lot of people that just recite it and don't think about what they're saying. Um, but they're inspired for a reason. These prayers are in here for a reason. And the Lord's Prayer is in there for a reason. And Jesus's high priestly prayer is in there for a reason. And Paul's prayers are in there for a reason. They're, they teach us how to pray. Because sometimes we don't know how to pray for that one person. And then we just take the scriptures and pray that that scripture and what and you know the Holy Spirit kind of guides us into um, his heart for those people. Um, so I think it's I think it's an important thing. So I want to take I want to take a few minutes and talk about that prayer since Janet gave me that great segue. Um, and uh, and then and we're going to we're going to look at at this particular prayer um, and we're going to. Uh, we're going to begin, I'm going to do something very bizarre, and I'm going to ask um, us to uh, read this together. I'm going to read it aloud as our prayer for the message. All right, so uh, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Um, so let's read together. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. So let's, so let's talk about Paul's prayer. Let's talk about Paul's prayer. What is Paul praying for first and foremost? What is the core of his prayer? It is his very first line that your love may abound. Um, I think it is so easy as Christians uh, to get lost in all of the various and assorted things, doctrine and ministry. They're good and wonderful and glorious things, but they begin with the abounding of God's love in us, that your love may abound. Um, and more and more, he says, that it, that, it, that it might be multiplied, that your love, which is really the love of Christ. I talked last week about how um, we should commit to give all of our love to Christ, to God, that he loves others through us. He takes what we devote ourselves to him, and he teaches us to love. I mean, we could go through a litany of situations in our congregation where people um, are being were are led to do things that kind of put them in a little bit of an uncomfortable situation because of their love for others, um, their care for others. And Paul prays that your love may abound. 
and this is this is I think significant because you know that Paul is going to deal with some false teachers in Philippians in Philippi. So why not begin with I pray that your knowledge and discernment abound with love, right? Why not pray it that way? Why not pray? Yeah, it'd be knowledgeable and and you know you want to know the scriptures and then you want to use them lovingly. Paul flips it around. He says, no, no, no. I want you to love scripturally. So don't scripture lovingly, love scripturally. He, he's going to take them down. And he says, you got to start with love. If your love is devoted to Christ, and over and over and over again, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus, he says in the previous verse. He prays for the complete, he's talking about the completion of the work of Christ Jesus. So his focus is all on Christ. He says, but what I want is your love to abound. And when it abounds, it will bring us into knowledge and discernment. Because if it's Christ's love, we will have knowledge and discernment. And that, that's a huge thing. Again, think about Paul, probably the greatest theologian the church has ever generated, all right? Inspired of God to write all these letters, founds churches throughout the entire Mediterranean basin, right? And if there is a knowledgeable guy, it is Paul. He knows the ins and outs of, of Roman law. He knows the ins and outs of Jewish religion. He knows the ins and outs of Greek culture. He, he, he surrounds himself with people that add to his base. And yet what he prays for is knowledge and all discernment. Because just having knowledge isn't enough. You have to know where that knowledge can be applied, where it needs to take a second door to love and compassion. Um, you know. This is, you know, it's something that we all struggle with. I'm notorious for being very insensitive to situations. Um, my natural default is to just say the truth, which, you know, sometimes is, um, could be said better. I mean, we're, we're being honest. There, there are times that I, that I, I tend to be very, um, you know, blunt. Uh, and, then, and then there are other times that because I'm aware I'm blunt, um, I'm very reticent to comment, and I wind up causing the same problem, right? Because I don't, I don't speak as boldly as I, sh you know, I'm like, well, I just, I just keep my mouth shut and I won't say anything, and I wind up causing exactly the same result. So always striking that balance of discernment, of knowing how much knowledge you need to have in a particular situation, um, and then when it abounds, when your love is abounding, right? It's overflowing. Then, then your knowledge will also be overflowing, and discernment is about knowing what applies and what doesn't apply, what fits and what doesn't fit. Now, that's not saying, well, just don't, there are certain times we don't call sin, sin. I mean, you call sin, sin. But, but there are times that, there are times that we need to um, metaphorically punch people in the face, and there are times when they just need to be embraced. We have to have discernment in the application of our knowledge, and that begins with love abounding. That begins with Christ. So it's always love first. Now it's Christ's love first. And that's an important distinction because when people say, well, love is love, love isn't all love. All things we call love are not the same thing. You know, I, I love the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I don't love the Buccaneers the way I love, um, well, I love them more now that they've got Tom Brady, but um, I, I, I love the Buccaneers, but I don't love them the way that I love Christ. I don't love them the way I love my wife. 
I, I, I love things, but not always the same way. Okay. And, and scripturally, the love of Christ is something very different. Yes, absolutely. Eric throws out intent precedes content. Exactly. Why am I telling you this? Right. What, what is my intent? You know, when we, we think about uh, that statement, intent precedes content. Why do I need to tell you this thing? You know, um, uh, I, I, you know, and you could draw countless ex- conversations about that. But how many times you and I have done it? I'm sure I've done it as a pastor. You sit under a sermon, you go, wow, there's so much information here. But what does it mean? How does it apply? I mean, you're telling me about the historical precedence of these theologians and these positions and these arguments, but how does that help? How does that manifest the love of Christ to the world? You know, and that, that's always a question. So we pray that our love abounds. I think that Paul is talking about love. Um, he's talking about their love for one another. He's talking about their love within their families. He's talking about their love for the people around them. Um, and I think it also, I think honestly, he's also talking about his love for the people that need to be corrected. Um, because you, you, can, you can correct people in love and be very direct and even brutal at times. Um, but it has to be love first. It has to be uh, grounded in that. Um, and and that's, that's a really difficult thing to do in a world where for most of us as Christians, we're looking at the way, forget the COVID thing, try to remember what the world was like before the pandemic. The things that we were dealing with then, we were dealing with the, you know, the sexual confusion of the world. We were dealing with the political divisions of the world. We were dealing with all this stuff and we're sitting there going, how these people, you know, I don't know if you ever have this internal monologue with yourself. I have this internal monologue with myself. How can people be so stupid, right? Like, like I sit there and I go, in my head, I'm like, ah, you know, this is so obvious. But that's not love abounding. Love abounding, when we're looking back at love, it tempers our knowledge with discernment so that we minister graciously. And he says this, why? Why does our love abound? Why do we have to... to um, grow in knowledge, you know, uh, knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So that you know what is good and glorious for Christ and what is not. And you know the difference. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to, well, back up. Um, I'm going to make a statement. All right. And then I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit. Um, and I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. Every act Every moment of the life of a Christian should be an act of worship. Now, the problem with what I just said is the definition we apply to worship. We think of worship as a service or music or prayer or Bible reading. And so we say, how can every act, every moment of my life be worship? Well, let me ask you a question. Um, if we determine to love our spouses and our children as Christ loves them, to devote our love to him and then have his love flow through us, isn't our loving of them, our correction of our children, our submission to one another as spouses, isn't that worship? Isn't it an act of worship? You know, for, for a husband, um, and I can only speak for men, I, I'm not going to speak for the ladies, they can speak for themselves, 
But for, for a man to submit to his wife and, and love her as Christ loved the church, that's an act of worship. It's, it's an act of devotion not to your wife. It's an act of devotion to Christ. And there is a huge difference between being devoted to your wife and being devoted to Christ. There's a huge difference between those two things. And there is no, um, there is no reason why if you're devoted to Christ, you will not find yourself fully devoted to your wife. Um, And that's a whole other sermon, but I'm using that as an illustration to, to approve what is excellent. You love your children so much you correct them, right? You, you, don't, you don't love your children so much that you never tell them when they do something wrong. Love brings us to knowledge and discernment so that we can approve what is excellent. And what is excellent in our children is that they honor Christ in their lives, that they be independent, that they, be, um, that they grow and mature, and, and they no longer need us, which is the most terrifying part of being a parent, I think. Um, as you get older and realize that your kid is getting older, we we're sat down to watch a movie last night and Ariel goes, she had, um, she had a, a, a fleece penguin blanket, a giant teddy bear and something else in the, in the recliner with her. And she sat down and she goes, yeah, I'm 16. Like, 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 <laughs> so, so, all right. So first of all, she's not 16 yet. So I'm like, don't jump the gun here, kid. You're 15. But, but she's, she, she enjoys still being a kid, you know, but eventually she's going to mature and, and, you know, she's going to grow beyond having a teddy bear and, and I'm cleaning out my basement and I have, I think I vacuum packed her stuffed animals and I think I have six crates of penguins in vacuum sealed bags um, downstairs, you know, but, but you want them to be excellent and that starts with your love which fuels your knowledge and your discernment and brings you into excellence. And, and, and so we're, we, we look at that um, and grow. And then he says, so, and so be pure and blameless. Um, and so be pure and blameless uh, until the day of Christ, uh, blameless for the day of Christ. And the result of all of this is going to be the fruit of righteousness. People make a big deal about the word fruit. I just want to throw this out for you. What fruit is? Fruit is what grows when something is healthy. All right. So when God, when when we love, when we we our love abounds, knowledge, discernment, we approve what is, you know, we everybody gets tied up on pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Um, that that's our uni- unity with Christ. That will result in us being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Uh, that doesn't mean that that fruit has any specific. You know, we don't expect a blueberry bush to grow pears, right? Um, fruit, or, fruit is different depending on, um, your fruit will be different depending on what kind of plant you are. But what's important is that when this process proceeds, what results is the fruit of righteousness. Now notice that it doesn't say that the fruit is that you will be righteous. But rather it is that righteousness through Jesus Christ begins with love. Righteousness begins with love. And this is what so many people who are trying to earn their way into heaven by, by saying, I'm a good person. I, I, I'm a righteous person. I follow all the rules. I do everything I'm supposed to do. That doesn't work because it begins with love. 
And those who are trying to earn their way into, into heaven, trying to be righteous enough for God to respect them, what they're really doing is they're yearning for the love that they can only receive, not through their righteousness, but through the grace of Christ. And righteousness flows from love. Love bring, comes to, as love abounds, knowledge and discernment is manifest. We, we grow and grow and we are filled with the fruit of righteousness. And this is what Paul's prayer is. And I want you to remember that this is Paul's prayer for them, that they might be able to deal with false teachers. That they might be able to deal with influences in the church. This is what he starts with. This is where we have to begin. Um, and so this is an extraordinary prayer that I think Paul sat down and said, how do I write this? I don't think he just dashed this off one Sunday afternoon. Um, this was not, you know, this was not a, a casual thing. He really wants them to be praying for this so that righteousness won't be manifest. Um, does this mean that we will never make mistakes in discerning what is good teaching and what is bad teaching? No, we will make mistakes. Um, but it is extraordinary that Paul brings us through that. Um, so, and that's his prayer. And I'm going to encourage you. Uh, we're going to post this. I'm going to put some stuff on the on the website. People have been sending emails and conversations, but continue to consider this um, this passage, this book, um, and and expand beyond it, um, beyond the the 15 or 20 minutes we spend talking about it on Zoom, um, and consider what it means for us. What does it mean for someone to pray this for me? All right. What does it mean for me to pray it for me? What does it mean for me to pray this for someone else? Both those I agree with and those I disagree with. Um, because that, that is a huge prayer. Um, and it is a prayer that brings us, I think, brings us into unity as the Church of Christ. That when our focus is, is here first and foremost, you know, especially as we get into our budget, budget um, planning and all that stuff and and um, I, you know, just real quick, I mean, we're going to have the meeting, not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, you know, our congregation, we never really have like these big, long debates about it, because I think that our primary focus has always been here. All right. How do we love one another better? And then how does that bring about knowledge and discernment? How does that, you know, we, we're always looking at that first. We're always looking at the relationships we have in Christ first. And so we don't wind up getting buried under um, what we might call budget first arguments. You know, I've been in church services where, or, or business meetings where people were arguing about where to buy light bulbs because you could save 30 cents if you bought them here as opposed to here, you know, and th those kind of debates. That's not love first. You, you know what I mean? That, that, there's nothing wrong with details, but where do we, where do we start with? Where's our love? Um, so, so just a, just a thought there from, um, from that prayer, and we're going to keep rolling um, through uh, through Philippians next week. We're really going to start talking about the the gospel and the advance of the gospel and those kind of things. But would you join me in prayer? Then we're going to sing a couple songs. We're going to have Lord's table, and we'll be done. Okay. So let's join. Let's join in prayer. Father, we do pray that um, our love abounds more and more, both to um, our families, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, our family, our church our community, um, that we do have the discernment and balance um, knowledge um, within love, uh, Lord, and that the fruit that we bear, um, whatever it looks like, would be all for your glory and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.